0: Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm here on my own today, now Steve, but joined by Professor Tim Bale. Welcome Tim, please introduce yourself.
1: Hi, my name is Tim Bale and I'm Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and I work on both British and European politics with a special interest in political parties, um, party members and the politics of uh, immigration. Great. Thanks,
0: Tim. So, Tim, you've done some work on why people change their parties. So this is obviously of interest to a podcast that talks about the centre ground. And it sounds like people crossing a sort of centre ground. So can you tell us what you found?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, this is part of a bigger project uh, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council into party members, in the UK. and We've been running that project since uh, 2015, actually. So we've um, managed, um, thanks to the ESRC, to do surveys of the members of six political parties uh, after the the various general elections. There have been quite a lot of them uh, since then. Um, But we uh, have concentrated uh, in those surveys on different things. So um, the, the 2019 survey, for example, uh, looked at uh, campaigning in particular the earlier surveys were really just a chance for us to kind of map out party membership uh, in this country get a sense of you know who party members were why they joined um, you know whether they were very different from each other according to which party uh, they belonged to and the kinds of um, uh, things that they thought about not just ideologically but also about how their parties were run and that all got put together in a a book called um, Foot Soldiers, um, which you know people are welcome to buy if they want. But um, uh, recently what we've been quite interested in is people leaving political parties. Uh, and that has led us to talk uh, most recently about um, people switching political parties. Uh, if you actually look at the literature in, in, in academia on, on political party membership. Uh, you will see that the 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 big interest has always been why people join, and that meant that that was a bit of a gap because we didn 't really know why people left political parties uh, and when we did some research on that um, with our members surveys we we found that it was predominantly uh, unsurprisingly in some ways ideological, so it was a sense that members thought that their party had kind of departed from uh, you know the, the kind of ideology that had led them to um, join it in the first place. And that was very often actually symbolised by a, a leader, a, a change of leader. So what's going on in the Labour Party, for example, at the moment seems to be a lot of people who joined because of Jeremy Corbyn uh, have now left the, the party or are in the process of, of leaving the party. And there'll be some people, of course, who've joined it because of, of Keir Starmer. Now, you know, if, if Keir Starmer were to be uh, deposed at some point, resign at some point, and a more left-wing option, would come in and we'd see kind of Starmerites leave the party. Um, but that then raises the question of, well, where do people who leave go? And what we found was actually quite a lot of them go to other parties, which is in some ways a bit of a surprise, uh, because you would expect these kind of deeply ideological people, uh, having you know made their choice of political party, um, not necessarily to... to you know, want to um, go to another political party once they would left it, but in fact, that that is uh, quite common, and and our recent research paper actually showed that, uh, for example, um, around uh, I think it's sixteen percent of um, Labour Party members and sixteen percent of Conservative Party members have previously been in other uh, political parties, and in some ways the the the, the interesting thing about that is which political parties they were formerly uh, members of. And that's something perhaps we can we can go on to talk about, if you like.
0: I'd love to. I mean, can we start, I suppose, at the, the start of the journey? So what is it that actually motivates people to join a political party in the first place? Because it's quite a fringe activity. So why do people <laughs> give up their time and their money to be part of... An organisation in that way.
1: Well, it is a good question. It's one that's been, you know, preoccupying political scientists for quite some time. Ever since um, we first started to do uh, party membership surveys, right back uh, in the early nineteen nineties, there are a couple of um, political scientists, uh, Paul Whiteley and uh, Pat Side, who, in fact, you know, both of whom are still going and still producing great work. Um, who, who first did surveys of the Conservative and the Labour Party, and then later on uh, the, the Liberal Democrats? Um, what they they found was that actually, perhaps unsurprisingly, there is a mix of, of motives for people um, to join. Um, most important would seem to be ideology. In other words, some sense that this party represents the kind of values that you yourself hold dear, and stand some chance of actually putting them into action. So that's quite important. Um, but there are other incentives as well. There are um, you know, social incentives, so uh, the chance to mix with like-minded people, uh, for example. Uh, a very small number are motivated by um, career incentives, uh, either because they think that um, being part of the political party might help them get on in their career, or Actually, might help them into a political career, but that is a, a kind of minority interest. Um, other people actually are, are quite interested in the, the the process of politics or enjoy the process of politics. So they actually, believe it or not, like going to meetings. Um, you know, they like debating. Uh, they they like organizing things. Uh, so you know, there are a range of incentives. But it, generally speaking, it's the the ideological the one that that first first gets people into joining political parties. And I should say that that can sometimes also be negative as well as positive, in the sense that you might join a political party because you really like that party, but you might also join it because you really don't like other parties and you want to stop them getting into power and you feel that, you know, you being a member of um, uh, the other party will, will, uh, will ensure that that doesn't happen. So, there are a range of incentives, but we've got a pretty good idea now I, I think about why people join um, political parties and it is interesting because as you say, in some senses it's, it, it can come over as a bit of irrational uh, behavior uh, not many people are members of political parties it's between sort of one and two percent of people and uh, you know you, you really aren't guaranteed to get very much uh, for your money in the sense of you know policies um, because Party members actually don't have that much impact on on party policies, although that depends uh, which party you look at uh, in, in part um, so you know there, there has to be something motivating them and as I say it's a mix of ideological of social and, and, and process incentives if you like
0: and then so you've said that people leave generally for ideological reasons so is there anything more about a why they leave and then where they leave? Four. so yeah. will you tend to see that a let's say a, an ex-labor party member will bounce around on the the left say between i don't know mm. from the lib dems to the greens to the the sort of socialist workers and the communist parties and the further left sort of socialist parties and then the, the, the conservative ukip Uh, similar to that on the right so do they stay within that sort of left right group or is it a bit more
1: complicated well no that is a really really good question and actually your your intuition is 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 broadly speaking right Um, you know there is uh more movement as it were you know between the the sorry in the blocks as it were the the left block if you like and and the right block than there is um between um, the blocks. Um, it's particularly the case, for example, that um, you know, for example, Green Party uh, members may well have switched uh, from from the Labour Party, uh, for example, uh, and and you know, Labour Party members you know may well have switched um, from the Green Party and vice versa. And certainly, you know, under Jeremy Corbyn. It's, it seems to be pretty clear that the Greens lost a few members to, to the Labour Party. And of course, it may well be, uh, with Keir Starmer coming in, that uh, the Labour Party then loses uh, members to the, the, the Green Party uh, as a result. And there is also, if you look on the other side of, of politics, um, you know, a tendency uh, for um, Conservatives and, and UKIP members to, to to swap around. But having said that, it, it's really important to say that actually, for example, if we take the Conservatives, if, if we take those um, members of the Conservative Party who, who have previously belonged to other parties, 29% of those um, who've switched into the Conservative Party come from UKIP, but actually 38% of them Came from the Labour Party. And that's simply because the Labour Party's got so many more members <laughs> that it's mathematically much more likely that a Conservative member who's previously been a um, member of a political party will, it would have been a, a Labour Party member rather than a UKIP uh, party member. And of course, you know, UKIP have been around um, for less time uh, as well. Um, So, so while it is true that, you know, there are these blocks, if you like, and and in some senses, there's a similarity there with voters, you know, they don't necessarily cross between the blocks, although some of them do, and particularly in recent um, elections, they have, Um, you know, that it it is the case that, that uh, party members on the left often will we'll leave and go to other parties on the left, party members on the right will um, do the same. So what about switches? So, We've talked about why you join a party, we've mm. talked about why you leave a
0: party, mm. but then what about the people who actually go through that whole process repeatedly, and what motivates <laughs> these people to, to switch their support from one political party to another? Is that just about... A perceived ideological alignment with themselves and the the sort of the shifting party.
1: Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, that that that's exactly what it is. It's that they they feel that the there is a mismatch between uh, their values and the party that they um, previously belonged to. They leave that political party, uh, and then although we're not sure about the the time uh, that elapses. Uh, they will then join another political party that they feel actually, you know, better uh, matches their their values. I think leaders are quite important in this. Leaders are certainly important in terms of um, both joining and leaving um, political parties. So it, it it wouldn't come as any surprise uh, that, uh, for example, you know, and it's an example we've already talked about. If you were um, a Labour Party member. Uh, who, uh, uh, you know, uh, like Jeremy Corbyn, um, but, you know, was very disappointed about Keir Starmer taking over, it will be no surprise if you then went to the Greens, because actually, although, of course, now they're they're losing their leaders, they're they're all up for for grabs, you know, you you like the look of the, the, the Green Party leadership. Likewise, if you look on the right, for example, you can imagine if somebody had previously been a member of UKIP, Uh, For example, or the Brexit Party, you know, looking at Boris Johnson and his promise to get Brexit done, uh, you know, to uh, do something about the the welfare state, um, you know, his F business attitude, that would be quite appealing to a lot of previous UKIP members. And it wouldn't be at all surprising if, um, you know, they had then um, considered uh, the Conservative Party as a result. But uh, I think one of the, the interesting Sort of standout findings, in some ways, from this research on on switching, is is actually um, about the extent to which there was, if you like, entryism on the part of um, UKIP members into the Conservative Party uh, under um, Theresa May. So, in other words, you know, was it the case as some people alleged, and particularly some of the MPs who who um, you know were then deselected, or at least were facing a lot of pressure uh, for deselection from their uh, local associations. Was it the case that that was due to um, people who had um, been UKIP members joining the Conservative Party to to you know harden up its stance on Brexit and to get rid of uh, you know supposedly Europhile uh, MPs? Um, now you know a lot of people have alleged that, but actually uh, that really doesn't seem um, to be to be the case. Now uh, you know. Um, Around 3%, we found, of all Conservative members in 2019 had a history with UKIP. So that really couldn't possibly account for, I think, um, you know, the party's move towards a, a, a hard Brexit and nor could it actually account, I think, for um, the decision to, to deselect certain members. That, you know, that had to do much more with um, you know Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, if you like, than it did with any kind of grassroots um, conspiracy um, to get rid of people, you know, who were, who were blocking uh, Brexit. And I mean, likewise, actually, you know, there, there were some accusations, uh, weren't there, um, that, you know, the, the, the hard left had in effect taken over um, the, the Labour Party. Um, but again, um, you know, if you, if you look at the numbers, I think it was something like 20, 22% of, of people who'd switched uh, into the, to the Labour Party came from from you know, miscellaneous other organisations. In other words, none of the six parties that we focused on. Um, but again, that was equivalent to just 3% of the total Labour Party membership. So, you know, e- even if there was some kind of hard left entryism into the Labour Party, it was incredibly limited. And actually, if you think about the maths surrounding that, that's unsurprising because those those left-wing parties had tiny, tiny memberships. So the idea that, you know, even if they switched on mass to the Labour Party, um, they could have, you know, um, taken it over, as it were, was always, I think, a bit unlikely. But yeah, I think our figures just back that up, really. There's
0: two final questions that I want to ask on this topic of sort of switching and general membership and Mm. the first one is what does this switching tell us about where a political center ground might be which to some extent implies that would be the center ground over which these sort of switches would move especially between the two main parties can you give us any insights into where a sort of center ground might be on some of the big issues
1: well, I mean, I think that's interesting, and some of that, some of the issues that's less clear because um, when you when you look at the contemporary Labour Party, it is really miles apart um, from the Conservative Party in terms of the views of its members. Um, the 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 contemporary Labour Party is um, way more socially liberal uh, in terms of its membership than the the contemporary um, Conservative Party, which is you know generally speaking pretty. Socially conservative and and pretty, you know, some political scientists would put it authoritarian. So there's not a great deal of uh, common ground there uh, on those kind of, you know, hate to use the term, sort of culture war uh, issues, if you like. Where there is rather more common ground uh, is probably, believe it or not, uh, on um, you know, economic issues. But even then, there isn't a great deal of common ground between the uh between the, the the members of those two big um political parties um in a way you know if there has been polarization in british politics and you know most people would argue that there has been um i guess party members are in some senses you know at the sort of cutting edge of that polarization you know you you, you couldn't really uh find two uh you know, sets of of people who who are <laughs> Um, less similar, you know, they really are chalk and cheese, the members of the Labour Party and and the Conservative Party. Uh, And yet, and yet, as I say, you know, if you look at the the party's, um, uh, you know, switches, then you do find that, um, you know, uh, nearly a, you know, a a fifth of of both um, parties um, members have come from other parties, and that actually, as I say, in the case of the Conservatives, for example, um, you know, of the people who used to belong to other parties, 38% of them belong to the Labour Party. Now, of course, you know, that's over the, their lifetime. So it could have been uh, that, you know, those people were, you know, Blairites or, you know, they were um, followers of uh, the sort of Jim Callahan um, you know, more moderate Labour Party, if you like, and they gradually switched into the Conservative Party. So, you know, the, the centre ground between them could be, in some senses, uh, his, historic uh, rather than contemporary. But certainly, I think in, in terms of party members, you know, if we're looking, um, you know, for some centre ground in, in British politics, I'm afraid we're unlikely to find it uh, among among the members of those two main um, political parties. Um, you know, there, well, there are, of course, the, the, the Lib Dems, um, you know, and some people would say that actually the, the members of the Lib Dems, um, you know, represent in some ways that, that, that centre ground. Certainly, if you do surveys, as we've done, of, of political party members views, then um, you know, the party members of the, of the Liberal Democrats really are in the centre, just as you imagine they would be. Uh, and, and just as you imagine, of course, the, the Labour Party will be, you know, socially liberal lefties and, and the Conservative Party full of um, socially conservative, um, you know, uh, Thatcherites in, in some way. Not all of them are Thatcherites. So as I say, much as I might like to, to find some centre grounds, um, when it comes to the, the party's members, uh, I'm not so sure.
0: OK, so one last question on sort of party membership as a whole. What can we learn about the size of a membership mm. and success? Is a bigger party membership more or actually less representative of the wider public? Now I'm thinking here about the Labour Party, which mm. has had by mm. far the largest membership in mm. the, the um, of any political party in the mm. UK, and yet is probably mm. further than it has, further from. Mainstream public opinion than it ever has mm. been, certainly under Corbyn, and mm. um, so is actually a, a big members base a hindrance to getting into office by properly representing the views of the people of the country.
1: That's a really good question. it's actually is something that we've written about in in other places. Uh, actually, um, it, it's certainly true to say that um, the Labour Party membership now. Uh, is is relatively representative of the the, the voters uh, who voted for the Labour Party in in 2019. In that you know, quite a lot of them are uh, middle class, quite a lot of them are highly educated, uh, and quite a lot of them work in the, the public rather than the, the private sector. But in some ways, that that is testimony to the fact that uh, the Labour Party. Uh, lost a whole bunch of voters who didn't share those characteristics, uh, but who used to vote for the Labour Party, uh, uh, come what may. Uh, The Labour Party, in other words, um, is representative of of those who currently vote for it, but it's not representative of those who've deserted the party and uh, who the Labour Party need to get back, Uh, so that's a big problem. When you when you come to the Conservative Party, uh, the Conservative Party uh, membership is actually not very uh, reflective of the Conservative Party's uh, vote now because the Conservative Party's vote is actually pretty uh, heterogeneous in terms of, you know, quite a lot of working class people will vote um, Conservative, Uh, quite a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people from um, fairly ordinary backgrounds uh, will, will do so now. But actually, the Conservative Party membership is very middle class. Uh, So there's a mismatch there. Um, There is less of a mismatch, however, on on values than there is in the case of the Labour Party. So um, Conservative Party members are pretty socially um, conservative, you know, pretty traditional attitudes, pretty authoritarian attitudes, and so do a lot of Conservative Party voters. So they're quite um, representative of them in that respect. They're not so representative, interestingly enough, of quite a lot of the people who switched to voting Conservative in 2017 and 2019. Uh, and that's because Conservative Party members are actually um, you know, quite, quite Thatcherite. Um, you know, they believe in a small state, they don't like redistribution, uh, they don't like high taxation, they don't want too much money spent, apart from perhaps on the health service. Uh, if you look at their, the voters who come over to the Conservatives since twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen, um, they're much more in favour of state action. Uh, you know, they 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 think that you know big business is a a problem, for example, uh, and they think the state you know should should spend more on on public services. You know, and that in some way sums up the, the dilemma of the, of the modern Conservative Party, and that's why um, you know. On the one hand um, Boris Johnson uh, and his colleagues are so keen on kind of prosecuting this culture war because it will hopefully um, <clears throat> keep that electoral coalition um, together um, because they know it's going to be quite hard um, given their MPs and given uh, their party members to do the kind of um, big spending that perhaps some of their new voters uh, would would like. So you know on the question of representation, it, it's, it's a little bit complex. Um, I think, though, you ask a, a, another really good question there, which is, is it uh, actually beneficial to have a large membership? Uh, and uh, I, I think on balance, um, one would have to say um, it probably is, um, because in very tight races uh, in elections, Um, boots on the ground do make a difference. You know, there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that local campaigning, um, you know, can make the difference between winning and losing a marginal seat, uh, for example. So having more people, uh, one would think, would be an advantage. Although, of course, that can be offset um, by um, large amounts of money. Um, So if, if a party is prepared to, you know, pay people to deliver leaflets, uh, you know, even pay people to do, you know, phone banking and, uh, and that kind of thing, then then it can make up for that difference. But, uh, you know, it, it's certainly the case that parties would prefer to have more rather than fewer uh, members. Uh, although, as you've hinted, there is, of course, a cost, because if those uh, members, um, you know, cause problems for the leadership, if on the doorstep um, you know they don't sell the party uh, in a manner in which it needs to sell itself. Uh, that can be uh, a problem as well. So uh, you know it, it's certainly not the case that the decline in party membership over the decades has been because parties don't want members anymore. it's it's you know if there has been a decline and there has been a decline at least until recently, it's because people haven't really wanted to join political parties as as much as they used to. So on balance, I'd say, uh, you know yeah more members is a good thing um you know it can give you uh you know a financial advantage because you know they still pay subscriptions uh it can give you you know a sense of kind of legitimacy if you've got lots of members they can help you uh, at elections they can be sort of ambassadors in the community between uh, elections uh so on, on balance yeah, i think parties still think that that members are a good thing and they still want to uh to recruit them so let's move on
0: to the Conservative Party then. Mm. Now you've written that you have concerns that the current Conservative Party is a threat to democracy. Mm. That's quite a big claim. So can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know I would point to what's happened to the Republican Party uh, in the United States as a you know a sort of dire warning really to people about what can happen. Uh, when you uh, invest as a, uh, a politician uh, in a leader uh, who is prepared, um, you know, to, to bend and even break the rules, or at least in this country anyway, because we don't have a codified constitution, um, the, the conventions that we are used to uh, having govern politics. Uh, and I think in in recent times we we have seen actually um, the the Johnson government um, do some quite worrying things. Um, You know, people will point to, for example, the decision to prorogue Parliament, although, of course, you know, that didn't um, last very long. Uh, People will point to the fact that, at least until Matt Hancock uh, was basically forced to resign recently, that there seems to be no accountability for ministers because, you know, even those who break the prime ministerial code get to stay on. Uh, in their jobs. Uh, you've got, I think, some quite worrying things going on in terms of voter suppression. Uh, the, the requirement you know, that, that is being touted that people show photo ID uh, when they go to the polling stations uh, you know, has very little um, evidence uh, behind it. Um, but you know, the consequences will clearly be that you know, possibly millions of people who might otherwise have voted will not now uh, be able to vote, and, and most of those arguably will be uh, the kind of people who are rather more inclined, perhaps, to vote uh, for parties other than uh, the Conservative Party. So I, I think on a on a whole range of um, things, and another would be you know public appointments. Um, you know, we we have a government that. I think has has realised that it can get away with a lot more uh, than than used to be the case, and I think that's actually quite a slippery slope. Uh, So it does seem like you know a rather sort of hyperbolic claim, especially from someone who I think, like me, doesn't specialise in hyperbolic um, claims. But you know, there are some worrying things I think going on, Uh, and they're particularly in some ways worrying when you know, we operate with an uncodified constitution when everything depends on convention, when everything depends on, um, you know, some sort of rules of the game that are kind of mutually recognised between the political parties. Once people begin to, to break those, and it appears that they can break them without, you know, any any penalty, I think, you know, we're, we're on quite dangerous ground there now i'm not saying you know we're, we're on our way to sort of hell in a handcart, and you know we'll be like poland and hungary before very long however i think poland and hungary are quite interesting examples uh, of um you know where you you have states that appear to be you know fairly liberal democracies um but you know over time um, those um, you know, that, that liberalism and some would say that democracy has been eroded, um, you know, by a, a, a series of you know small steps. Um, you know, not one big sweeping away of the, the checks and balances, but you know, gradually sort of nibbling away uh, until you know, eventually, you're in the situation that you are in with, with Hungary, for example. Uh, and, you know, particularly when it comes, for example, to, to the, the courts in Poland, constitutional court in Poland, um, and the situation you, you have there. So, you know, I, I'm I guess, like many people, I'm discomforted. And I think, you know, unless those of us who are discomforted actually, you know, talk about that discomfort and actually make the point that, you know, politicians who, Previously, you know, a few years ago, probably wouldn't have put up with this kind of thing, and certainly wouldn't have put up with this kind of thing if it would come from <laughs> the other party. Do seem to be putting up with it now, uh, almost on the argument that you know the the ends justify you know any means, uh, and I think that that is worrying. And as I say, you know, the the, the ultimate kind of worrying example now is I think the Republican Party. Uh, where, you know, it seems as if some people in, in the Senate and in, uh, in the House will do and, and say anything that, um, you know, backs up the kind of, well, I would say sort of authoritarian populism that we've seen from President Trump and also, of course, President Trump himself.
0: Let's just focus on the, the Conservative Party in terms of, I suppose, how they are in government. Mm. Now you're something of an expert on the Conservatives. I think it's safe to say you've written quite a few books on them. Mm. So, can you put the current Conservative Party in a historical context? Now, mm. partly this is, I think, quite interesting because the current Conservatives under Boris Johnson they're criticised for not really having any ideology, mm. just um, you know shifting around a bit fairly easily um, to. F- follow whatever happens to be popular, whether that's by sort of polling or levelling up and Mm. Brexit and some of these sorts Mm. of things. But isn't that actually one of the key historical themes of the Conservatives, that they exist to be in power above all else, that they've gone from the post-war consensus to the Thatcherites to a non-ideological Johnson party? Mm. So isn't it true that actually the, the dogmas of the Thatcher era and her followers, her followers, are actually the anomaly in the party's history?
1: Mm. Um, I mean, I think there is some truth in what you say there. I mean, clearly, this kind of will to power that the Conservative has, uh, Conservative Party has demonstrated over time, uh, is is very important. I mean, there's no doubt that. Um, you know, a party which you know, certainly in the early 20th century kind of reoriented itself um, towards a party that would essentially keep the socialists out, you know, w- will always do whatever it takes after a while anyway to uh, make sure that uh, it rather than the Labour Party uh, gets into power. And I think, you know, the kind of supreme in some ways illustration of that. Uh, was actually in in 2010 when, effectively, you know, David Cameron, uh, you know, would have offered almost anything I think um, to the Liberal Democrats to ensure um, that they did a coalition with him rather than with the Labour Party. Now, obviously, you know, he was helped by the fact that he could offer the Liberal Democrats, um, you know, a, a majority government, and, and Labour could not. But if you if you do a bit of a counterfactual and you think that that uh, the conservatives were, you know, the outgoing government, as it were, in two thousand and ten, they wouldn't have behaved like the Labour Party did. They really wouldn't have, you know, said to themselves, "Oh, you know, we're exhausted. We've been in power for thirteen years. Maybe we should give the other guys a go." Um, you know, they probably won't be there for that long. <laughs> That wouldn't have happened, you know, uh, if if um, you know the Billy Conservative Prime Minister lost that election in two thousand and ten. You can be sure that they would have offered the Liberal Democrats absolutely anything that they could have done <laughs> in order to stay in power. So, uh, you know, I think that's a good example of their will to power. But having said that, I don't think it's true to say that the Conservative Party uh, is necessarily a kind of unideological um, party. I think there are some fairly kind of basic values uh, that the Conservative Party has held to over time, even if it's had to compromise on those values in order to to stay in power. So those values are actually broadly Thatcherite, although we we tend to think of Mrs. Thatcher as the uh, anomaly. Uh, actually, you, you can you can argue that what went before uh, Margaret Thatcher in the so-called sort of consensus era, you know, between you know 1951 and 1979 was more of a, a, an anomaly. I wouldn't actually call it a consensus. I'd call it a compromise because I think uh, although, you know, the Conservative Party recognised that it, it couldn't do everything it wanted to do or certainly couldn't cut everything it wanted to cut because it was electorally Um, Popular at the time, the Conservative Party still held, uh, you know, certain truths to be self-evident, and I think, you know, they are that the state should be as small as it reasonably um, can be, Um, spending um, should be uh, limited, and taxation uh, should certainly be as as low uh, as uh, possible. Uh, That um, uh, in the international arena, um, uh, national sovereignty. Uh, was incredibly important that, in terms of social policy, one shouldn't you know go too fast in embracing um, progressive change. Although you know one shouldn't completely uh, stand out against it. So uh, I think you know there there are some, if you like, eternal verities. Uh, although you know just because they're eternal verities doesn't mean they can't be <laughs> compromised uh, on. Uh, when when it's necessary and I think what you see in in the Johnson government is in some ways um, you know that that compromise um, being um, played out but it's also uh, not just a compromise but a tension um, and, I, and I think you can see um, at the moment that you know Johnson is perfectly happy to um, you know, will the ends? So, in other words, you know, levelling up, more spending on vital public services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But is he able to to um, you know, will the will the means? His his party seems to um, you know be very very resistant to actually coming up with any of the resources necessary um, to put his plans. Into action, And I think a very good example of this um, is the recent spat over social care. We heard that Johnson, you know, finally got this plan together uh, and that maybe it was going to be paid for by uh, an increase in national insurance. Well, you know, it seems as if, you know, that is now uh, not possible. We've heard that, you know, Johnson and the Conservative Party are converts to, you know, the green agenda, to net zero, et cetera, et cetera. But then we've got people in the Conservative um, Parliamentary Party saying, you know, well, we can't do this if it means, you know, too much of a cost uh, for our voters. So uh, I think perhaps the 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 legacy of Margaret Thatcher is is perhaps to have made the party a little bit more ideological than than perhaps it was. I think if you look at the the 50s, the 60s and, and to some extent, the 70s as well, Um, the Conservative Party was willing, you know, when it had to, to to spend a bit of money to to make the compromises it felt it had to make with the electorate. Now, I think, rhetorically, it's still prepared to make those compromises with the electorate, but I'm not sure if it will actually, to use a, (laughs) a, a, you know, a bit of a a common phrase, it's not going to pony up. And and that's going to be a problem, I think, because I, I think some Conservative MPs, um, think it will be enough, um, you know, not to come up with the, the the goods as long as they can keep banging on about crime or immigration or, you know, statues or, or whatever. That might get them past the next election because they've got such a big majority. But I don't think they can go on forever promising people You know that that uh, this post-Brexit Britain will be you know a land of um, levelling up unless they are actually prepared to to spend the money likewise you know on the health service likewise in education etc etc you know so so in other words holding their electoral coalition together is possible with this war on woke if you like but but ultimately it's probably going to require um, some money and if they're not prepared to borrow and they're not prepared to tax then I'm not really sure how they're going to be able to do it.
0: So what do you make of William Hague's recent piece on the necessity of Conservatives actually embracing a more active state? Mm. He, so he said and a quote free market philosophy triumphed in showing how to create prosperity but it struggles with how to make that prosperity more equitable sustainable or resilient and therefore he raises the threat of a new kip to the party's right a libertarian low tax small state insurgency on the party's right so what do you think about that sort of tension that he's talked
1: about Well, I actually think that William Hague um, was a terrible leader of the Conservative Party, but he's actually, I think, someone who who does get it now, you know, in in terms of how the party's got to change. And and as he says, you know, it may have to embrace some state action that, you know, previously uh, it, it wouldn't have contemplated, particularly on the environment, but particularly in terms of public services and and also increasing opportunity. So I think he gets it. But I think a lot of Conservative MPs, and and we've already seen some columnists, you know, Fraser, Nelson, for example, um, Rob, um, Colwell, uh, who I'm a big fan of, I should say. But, uh, you know, I I don't think, you know, they really buy the idea that um, the the Conservative Party should be, you know, moving in, in that direction. I mean, as... As for you know the the possibility of a a sort of new kip uh, I think that's quite unlikely actually uh, I think what happened with change u k really does mean that that um you know most people you know wanting to to get into government uh, in in this country aren't likely to be doing it via a new political party to be honest and also you know from from what we know about the electorate actually you know the 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 number of voters who, if you like, are in that that quadrant. So, you know, they're they're kind of liberal on the economy and, and perhaps socially liberal as well, or maybe they're you know, maybe they're authoritarian, but let's say those two quadrants, there aren't really very many neoliberal voters. <laughs> there are quite a lot of neoliberal conservative MPs and a fair few uh neoliberal. Um, conservative columnists and, and, a, and, you know, a smattering of neoliberal and Conservative Party members. But there aren't that many voters uh, in the market for that kind of um, policy. So uh, I can't really see that happening. I think there's more of a danger um, that the Conservative Party will kind of talk a good game uh, in terms of levelling up, in terms of you know providing quality public services, in, in in terms of improving opportunity, and you know even building some of these infrastructure projects, but you know it, unless they can they can walk the talk, eventually, I think they're going to run into problems. And I think I think William Hague is is quite right, um, you know, to try and um, encourage you know the, the MPs uh, in in the party to to, to contemplate. Actually, taking this kind of stuff seriously rather than simply paying lip service to it. Uh, because I, I think, you know, in the end, you know, there will be a mismatch, uh, unless they do listen to him, between, you know, what they're offering rhetorically uh, and what they're actually doing for real.
0: So we've talked quite a lot about the sort of potential problems coming down with the right with the Conservative Party, which I suppose to me, it seems like as much as the Conservatives might be having or facing potential problems in the future, those problems are only really as severe as the opposition. Mm. And given that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party could not be more different in their history of successes at winning general elections, I do think it's worth just bringing this to a close by talking about the current opposition party, and especially as it gives us a chance to Talk a little bit more about some work that you've done, in this case, a project on party members. You've mm. written in depth about the membership of the Labour Party mm. under Corbyn and since. So, can you tell us about the Labour Party? Who makes up the membership? You talked about a little bit in terms of sort of social background, but how does the party as well appeal both to the current membership and beyond the current membership?
1: Well, the, the thing you have to. Um... Appreciate about the Labour Party is that um, its members are very middle class, not much less middle class actually than um, Conservative Party members. They're incredibly well educated, you know, the, the majority of them are, are graduates. They're not actually as young as some people um, think they are. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was particularly adept at, you know, always being photographed with lots of keen young things around him, you know, um, you know, striding down the promenade at Brighton at conference, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, they're pretty middle aged as well. And they're also, it has to be said, pretty white. Then uh, there's a bit more of a gender balance in the, the Labour Party than there is in the Conservative Party, uh, although that's changed a little bit in in, you know, very recently. Um, but there's more of a gender balance. So they're, they're not, if you like, kind of horny-handed, you know, sons of the <laughs> soil uh, uh, or salt of the earth kind of working class people for the, for the most part. They're, they're pretty middle class. And along with that goes, you know, attitudes that, you know, you might associate, it with, associate with the educated middle class. So as I say, they're, you know, they're socially very liberal. I think around, you know, in 2019 we did our last, last survey, and, and around two-thirds of Labour Party members uh fall into what we call the socially liberal left cluster. <laughs> so in other words, you know, the, the majority of them are you know very left wing and very socially liberal. In fact, they're probably even more socially liberal than they are uh they are left wing. Um so, so sorry, what can you just
0: explain what you mean by yeah. So so it's something that we've talked about in the podcast before and whether liberal is the correct term or whether we need to sort of borrow, I think this come, maybe comes from American politics, but like progressive, even hyper-progressive because we've gone away from the sort of liberalism of, I disagree with what you say, but defend to the death your right to say it type yeah. liberalism. We've gone into a sort of progressivism. So when you talk about that difference between being liberal and being left-wing, yeah. What exactly do those terms
1: mean? Well, um, that, that's a very good question. I mean, you know, obviously there are many dimensions in politics, but political scientists have tended to go with just two. So the, the first dimension is the one that I guess most people would recognise, and that's the one that tends to be called left-right. Uh, but you could also see it in terms of state uh, market, um people tend to you know fall somewhere along um that line uh, and if you you know if you're on the left it means you know you you tend to uh value redistribution uh you want more public spending uh you think um big business uh shouldn't be trusted that that kind of thing if you like when it comes to the other dimension, what we're talking about is is a dimension which kind of cross cuts that which is sometimes called the liberal authoritarian uh, dimension and that dimension like the other one actually is is kind of um, put together by asking people um, questions about their underlying values uh, and and those those underlying values i mean uh, you know, there's a whole battery of questions but uh, or statements that you get. Um, people to agree or disagree with. So one of them would be on the on the liberalism uh, authority and liberal dimension, Um, young people don't have enough respect for traditional British values, uh, for example. Okay, now, if you're socially very liberal, you will disagree with that. And in fact, it's true, if you if you look at Labour Party members, less than one in five agree that young people don't have enough respect for traditional British values, for example. Now, that's not the only statement in the battery. There's about, you know, five statements in that battery. Um, but, but that gives you some idea of, of what social liberalism means. So when
0: you say about um, the sort of left and liberal thing, you mean that yeah. they will prioritise social progressivism over uh, sort of redistributive big state leftist economics?
1: Well, um, no, what I would say is that they, they prioritise actually quite leftist economics, and they'd also um, prioritised um, very liberal social values. So I think that's where most Labour Party members are, they're, you know, they're on the kind of the liberal end of that second dimension, and they're on the left end of that first dimension. So you know, they'd like to see more state uh, when it comes to the economy. Uh, but, you know, they've got um, very liberal values on things like uh, immigration. That's That that would be a good example. And that, I think, is where the, the Labour Party membership uh, is, is at the moment. And, and one thing that I would say about that is that actually that means that they're actually quite like the MPs. Although the MPs tend to, you know, because we've done surveys of MPs as well, although MPs tend to be a little bit less, you know, left wing by reputation, than uh, the membership actually there's very little difference in there and they are also very socially liberal as well so so you know the the there isn't actually a mismatch between the the grassroots of the Labour Party and MPs it's it's a sort of favourite of um, political coverage to suggest that all the MPs are terribly right-wing compared to the to the membership but in fact (laughs) that doesn't seem to be the case so you know Labour have got in some ways, fewer problems potentially between the the, the the rank and file and the MPs, although you wouldn't know that if you follow the coverage of British politics in the media. Actually, it's the Conservatives who've probably got you know, more potential problems uh, in terms of a mismatch between what the MPs want, which tends to be, you know, pretty uh, right-wing on the economy, so you know, very market-based. Um, but actually, quite a lot of Conservative MPs, although they probably wouldn't admit it in public, are quite socially liberal. Um, but if you look at the Conservative Party membership, they're less right-wing on the economy than their MPs, and you know rather less socially liberal than their MPs. So, Labour's got something going for it in terms of the sort of the integrity, uh, the organisational integrity of the, of the party. Uh, but as I say, the problem the Labour Party has got is that uh, there isn't. Um, you know, a very close match between the, the values of the members and of the MPs on the one hand and the values of the uh, voters they need to get back uh, on on the other hand. Although there is a, a, a much closer match uh, between the MPs and the members of the Labour Party uh, on the one hand and those voters on the other hand. When it comes to the economy, than there is... Uh, when it comes to social liberalism, because a lot of the voters who, who deserted the Labour Party in twenty seventeen and, and, and twenty nineteen are actually not very socially liberal at all. You know, they uh, you know they have pretty decided views on law and order, pretty decided views on uh, immigration, uh, pretty decided views on kind of traditional education, etc., etc. And the, you know, they don't accord with the you know the more socially liberal views of the, of the Labour Party membership or of Labour MPs.
0: So I just want to finish briefly by opening an enormous can of worms. You said early on that you work on the politics of immigration. So can you just give us a a slight flavour of where the politics of immigration is and where any kind of centre ground might be?
1: Well, one of the most interesting um, things about people's views on immigration over the last few years, and again, you wouldn't, in some ways, know this um, from from some of the coverage in the media of British politics. But you would know if you you know uh, you talk to political scientists like uh, Maria Soleska uh, and Rob Ford, is that actually people have got rather more accepting and tolerant and and, and liberal when it comes to immigration in this country uh, over the last few years. Now. You know to some extent that might have something to do with brexit and the feeling that you know it's now under control but actually um maria and rob's work shows that people were becoming more liberal even before then um and in fact one could argue given the importance of uh, immigration to the brexit uh, result in the referendum in 2016 that um at least for leavers it was it was fortunate that it was held then <laughs> rather than uh, a little bit later uh, because you know people might not have been quite so exercised as they were back in in 2016 by immigration particularly of course because uh their attitudes to immigration weren't simply a result of sort of underlying values but were the result of you know the migration crisis in europe appearing on you know our screens um, from 2015 Uh, Onwards and and making people very, very worried about it. So so what we know about immigration um, and and voters' attitudes to immigration is that, you know, yes, there are some underlying uh, values uh, that that determine those attitudes, um, but they're becoming more liberal as voters uh, who have less liberal attitudes uh, disappear from the electorate, (laughs) to put it politely, um, and uh, younger people begin to replace them, younger people with you know rather more kind of liberal attitudes, although you can you can overdo that i mean you know broadly speaking, people in this country are still you know pretty uh, i guess authoritarian on some of their attitudes in, in immigration i don't want to give the idea that you know everyone is suddenly saying, you know, yeah, let them all come, it's no problem at all. That isn't the case, but it's still the case that they are becoming rather more liberal than they used to be. So those underlying values are important, but also people's attitudes to immigration are actually quite dependent on what's going on at the time. And it's hardly surprising, really, that that people were so exercised by immigration in, in 2016, given You know, the number of um, people who had come to live and work in this country from EU countries um, from 2004 uh, onwards. I mean, millions of people. And that's a big change for a lot of people. And and it made some people feel quite uncomfortable uh, with change. So there is a relationship, if you like, between numbers and and people's attitudes and and, um, concerns about immigration. And particularly when you look at places that you know hadn't previously experienced very much immigration, so it's very often the kind of rate of change uh, that makes a difference. So, as I say, you've got underlying values, you've got you know contingent events, but and this is where I think you know it, it, it does become very important um, to to follow politics. What politicians. Uh, and to some extent, the media um, talk about when they talk about immigration does actually matter as well. So, so people's views about immigration are to some extent um, cued, influenced, primed uh, by politicians and the media. You know that that is is such an important part of politics uh, nowadays. So, if if uh, you know politicians um, focus on it, then you know, you will find that uh, people will begin to focus on it more. If the media focuses on it, you'll find that, um, you know, that people will begin to focus on it more. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's all down to, you know, the, the Daily Mail or the, the Express or the Sun or whatever, but, you know, you can't discount that. Uh, and I'm not saying that it's all down to, you know, Priti Patel banging on about people crossing, you know, the channel in boats, but you can't discount um, you know the the influence of of what she says you know in what Nigel Farage etc uh, says well that that makes a difference so you know political entrepreneurship on immigration is quite important
0: brilliant well look, thank you so much for your time Tim that's been honestly really fascinating covered a lot of topics there and in a lot of depth so that's very good of you thank you very much for giving us the
1: time okay well thanks very much Martin it's great to talk to you And thank you very much for
0: listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast, and goodbye.